From APM, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Emily Hanford. I want to do something that's, you know, much, much different than probably a lot of principals. I want, you know, the boards to come down off the houses. I want less crime and people from outside our community coming in and selling drugs. I want to start working on the neighborhood, the streets. That was Craig Hockenberry, the principal of a public school in Cincinnati and one of the main characters in a new documentary film by Amy Scott. Many of you probably know Amy. She's the education correspondent for our sister program, Marketplace. But she's also a filmmaker, and she's our guest today on the podcast. Her film is called Euler, One School, One Year. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Emily. Let's begin by hearing a bit more uh, from Craig Hockenberry, the principal. He was the principal of Euler when you started making this film back in 2012. A little girl coming in, a third grader, covered in dirt, with one flip-flop yesterday. The other one busted on the way in. This was uh, January. I could call her mom and say, you know, where's her shoes? Be mad and call 241 kids and say this is neglect. Or I could just find a way to get this girl a shoe. Okay, Amy, so tell us about Craig Hockenberry and why you chose to spend a year filming him and his school. Well, I did a story for Marketplace about Euler School um, in the spring of 2012 as part of a series on education and poverty. And it was just going to be one story about this school and the various services it offered inside its school building. It's part of the community school movement growing around the country where schools are offering health care and mental health care and social services inside the school building in especially high poverty neighborhoods. So I did this one story, and at the time, Euler School was in a temporary location while its old school building was being renovated. And they told me while I was visiting that in the coming fall, the brand new, you know, $21 million renovation would be complete and and Euler would reopen with a, a vision center, a preschool serving kids from six weeks old to age five. Um, they would serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner and be open year-round. And and the real vision for this model would really be coming true. And I thought, well, I have to go back. So I did that one story. Um, but I decided that it would be interesting to follow the school for its first year in its old building um, with all of these services in place as uh, the principal tried really to not just transform a school, but its surrounding neighborhood. Okay, so let, let's uh, set the scene a bit and talk about the neighborhood that this school is in. Uh, it's called Lower Price Hill in Cincinnati, and let's hear uh, Craig Hockenberry describing what things look like there. I can walk you outside the door, not even 15 steps away, and I could probably get just about any drug that I want. I could walk you another 15 feet down and there are our parents that are prostituting and are hooked on heroin and crack cocaine. So he's painting a, a pretty bleak picture of the community that this school is serving. So tell us more about the neighborhood. Tell us what the school is kind of up against uh, in terms of trying to be a good school in this kind of neighborhood. Well, one of the things I found really compelling about this story was that the population of the school is not typical when we talk about inner city, poor neighborhoods. The culture is known as urban Appalachian, uh, meaning when coal mining jobs dried up uh, after World War II, a lot of families 
migrated to urban centers like Cincinnati looking for factory jobs. And Lower Price Hill became sort of an enclave. So it's uh, it traditionally had been a largely white neighborhood, um, though it's become more diverse in recent years. And before, about 10 years ago, almost no one from this neighborhood was graduating from high school. The local school, Euler at the time, only went through first sixth grade and then eighth grade. And um, after the eighth grade, most kids dropped out rather than ride the bus to a school in a different part of town where they didn't feel they belonged uh, or didn't fit in or dropped out for various other reasons. Um, And in recent years, you know, drugs have become a huge problem in the neighborhood. Like in many communities throughout the United States, heroin has taken root. Um, A lot of the kids' parents struggle with addiction. And, you know, most of the kids at the school uh, qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, uh, Their parents may get by on public assistance of some kind. So I think what sets this neighborhood apart a little bit is that it's really a neighborhood school. In many cities, kids are now traveling to other neighborhoods to go to school. Um, But this community, the school is really an anchor for its community in a way that I think some neighborhoods have lost. So let's talk a little bit then about the challenge for the school. So they have this brand new, beautiful building. Uh, They're bringing in all these services. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about what they have there. But let's just talk a little bit about what the school is up against. At the beginning of the school year, it's identified by the state, I think, as what's called a priority school. So what does that mean? What, What kind of pressure is this school under? A priority school is a school that is in the bottom 5% of schools in the state for academics. And specifically, uh, Euler's graduation rate was a concern. Um, as I said, this was a very new high school. but um, And so while it was graduating kids for the first time, you know, in, in many cases, for the first time in a long time, uh, the graduation rate officially was less than 60%. And um, this was... Th- kind of a surprise to the principal. The school had to choose one of five models um, for state, you know, turnaround. Um, And four of those models involved replacing the principal. The fifth model would allow the school uh, to keep its principal if he could demonstrate that he could lead the school's turnaround. And so that's where they start this school year. And he's already been at the school for 14 years. Right. And while it's always been a struggling school, has demonstrated a significant amount of progress. You mentioned that hardly anyone was graduating from high school. And there's even a scene in there where the state superintendent comes in and says she remembers when this school had two graduates. So it's, it's, it's got one of the worst graduation rates in the state, but it's got a pretty good graduation rate compared to where it had been. And here's a principal who's been there for 14 years. It's a school that's really the anchor of the community. But at the end of the school year, he's going to lose his job if he doesn't bring that graduation rate and those test scores up, right? Right. Those are the stakes. Okay. So so what is his plan to do it? What is he trying to do over the course of the year? Well, he's very focused on this goal of transforming the neighborhood. Um, He admitted to me that he didn't initially take this letter that he got from the state very seriously because he had, you know, made all this progress. He had a lot of support from the community and from wealthy donors in the city of Cincinnati. Um, So I think he wasn't that worried about his job, to be honest. Um, He was focused on 
you know, really the first year of implementing a lot of these partnerships inside the school. He was also, I mean, you see in the movie, he's he's out on the streets wrangling kids who uh, he finds skipping school. He was very focused on getting attendance up and convincing students who had dropped out to come back to school. Yeah, there are definitely a lot. He's out in the community. He's not inside the school all the time. He definitely sees that his job is to be the principal of that school, but in some ways to be the principal of the neighborhood. I think he's going out and chasing kids who are skipping and offering $5 to community members to give them tips. (laughs) Um, It's a great scene. And he finds them all, you know, a woman in the neighborhood, you know, gives them a tip to go into the aqueduct and there they are. And he's in the car and he's chasing them and he's, you know, wrangling them back to school. But so, but I want to talk about this idea that the way that you would go about improving a school is to improve the neighborhood. There's a woman, um, I think she's the coordinator of community services at the school, who says that in order to revitalize a school, you have to re- revitalize the neighborhood, which I think, you know, really struck me because I think that within um, some education circles these days, there, there's really been a strong focus to uh, just focus on what's happening inside schools, that if there's an intense focus on curriculum and discipline and achievement within the walls of a school, that that's going to be the best, most direct path to improve outcomes for kids. But, you know, Hockenberry and his colleagues at Euler have a very different view. They really see it as their job to be out there on the streets, to be out there in the community, to be improving the neighborhood, not just improving the school. What what did you learn about that? What do you, What did you learn about that approach? Well, for one thing, I think it it created a lot of buy-in from the parents and other community members for what they were trying to do. It gave the community a sense that this school was there for them. Um, and, you know, if they needed anything, if they need food, they go to the school building. You know, a lot of people, I think, bristle at this idea. I'm always a little bit surprised by some of the comments we get online for my marketplace stories about this school. Um, that people think the school is standing in for families. It's doing everything that families should be doing. But I think the this community school uh, approach um, believes that, you know, poverty is an obstacle to learning um, and that if if it can address some of the barriers, then maybe students will have a better shot at <laughs> learning, at mastering the, the subjects that they're supposed to be mastering, at graduating. Um and that it's not just the children that are at risk here, that if the parents are better off, the kids will be better off, too. So there are um, some adult services there, parenting uh, classes and a GED program uh, as well. And the idea is to make this school, as I said, a hub um, for the neighborhood and, and feel welcoming to everyone. Let's talk about some of the students who are at the school. You follow a couple of students pretty closely through the course of the year, and one of them is a 12th grader named Raven Gribbins. Uh, Here she is introducing herself. I lived in Lower Price Hill my whole life. It had been rough, but it had been okay, too. Everybody used to tell me, you're not going to make it through high school. You're going to have a baby by 16. So I'm glad to prove all them wrong. All right, so tell us about Raven and why you decided to focus on her. So Raven Gribbins was 17 when I started uh, making the film. Um, When I talked to the principal about making this documentary, you know, you can't just walk into a school with a camera and say, you know, hi, let me talk to some students. (laughs) Um, He really had to to help me find students whose parents would give permission to be interviewed and on camera. So he identified a couple of students, um, about three, 
And uh, Raven was someone who had grown up in the neighborhood just a block or two from the school. She'd gone to Euler since kindergarten. Her father had gone to Euler. Her grandfather and grandmother had gone to Euler. So this was a, a generational relationship with this school. Um, and no one had graduated. No one had graduated in her family. She was aiming to be the first in her family to graduate. Her father um, had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, he couldn't really read or write very well. Uh, her mother also um, struggled with addiction and had been um, you know, had worked as a prostitute. And Raven had mostly been raised by her grandmother. But when she uh, began her senior year, she had recently moved back in with her father, who had been sober for about five years and was rebuilding a relationship with him. And he was very determined that she finish high school and do what he had not been able to achieve. Yeah, there's a really lovely scene. There's a lot of lovely scenes in this film. But there's one where you're interviewing Raven and her dad, and they're at his apartment, and they're sitting really close, shoulder to shoulder on the couch. And her dad is saying really proudly and definitively that she is going to graduate from high school. And then he says, hopefully she'll go to college. And at that point, Raven rolls her eyes and makes a face at him. (laughs) What did you make of that moment? That's the only time you hear my voice in the film because yeah. I, I said, why did you make that face? Because it, it came across to me as this mix of irritation and um, and really kind of stubbornness, which I think you'll see a lot in her character. She clearly believes that she's going to go to college and why would her dad doubt her? Um, but I think it also shows a little bit of his ambivalence. I mean, he didn't get to go to college. He's a little bit nervous about her leaving home and what this will mean for him and for the family. But he's also clearly very proud of her. Hmm. Let's play another scene from the film. Um, and this is the principal, Craig Hockenberry. And this gives you some sense of, of him and what he's up against and how he approaches his job. So it's basketball season and there's been a fight. Uh, between two basketball teams, among the basketball teams. Set this scene up for us. Okay, so, well, this is a really hard day for Mr. Hockenberry, as I still call him, because he was the principal. Um, He has just returned to school after visiting the site where one of the the mothers of students at his school had been murdered. Um, And her body had been dumped, and, you know, there's a small memorial set up there. Um... And this, unfortunately, this kind of thing happens a lot at Euler. Murder is not uncommon, and there's often a connection to the school or to the neighborhood. So he comes back to school, and his basketball team, who he's worked really hard to recruit and build up, um, he really believes that sports, having sports at school, is one of the things that makes a high school a real school and makes kids want to be involved. So you'll see the kids have these fancy uniforms. They look really sharp. Um, they're, you know, he, they put a lot of focus on the kinds of things that make kids want to go to school. So he gets back and there's a police car at the school and uh, someone has called the cops about his basketball team being involved in some fight in the neighborhood. You're his brother. Don't let him do that stuff. Tackle him. Drag him in here. Tie him to something. This is our only chance that we have to be winners. You guys fought every game last year. You were an embarrassment. And now nobody can beat us because everybody's playing together. But one problem throws everything off. When a fight breaks out, people lose their lives. 
one wrong move in this neighborhood and you're not going to college. Yeah, so one wrong move in the neighborhood and you're not going to college. That is the kind of thing that I see and hear all the time when I'm reporting in low-income communities and low-income schools is that there's this sense that you're just one little moment, one event, one step away from it all falling apart. And uh, so I wonder, why did you put that scene in the movie? What, what did that scene mean to you? Well, I think, as you said, it's, it's a common story, and there are so many potential pitfalls that students in neighborhoods like this face. One example is a, a young man who appeared in the radio series, not in the film. Um, he was a dropout that, that Hockenberry tried to recruit to come back. He was like, you only need a couple credits. Come back and uh, enroll. Come see me. He never did. And um, a year after I was filming, I got a call from the school that, that he had been picked up for a shooting and is probably still in, in jail, if not prison. That So what he meant was you're not going to college because you might be dead, you might be in jail. Um, and he tried, I think, to really instill a sense of, of fear in, in students that, you know, this was serious stuff. And if they messed up, it was going to be hard to get back on track. You can also really hear the emotion in his voice and how much he cares. I mean, he's really... Um it's not like the idea of a, of a yelling principal is so odd, but you hear in his voice the emotion where he is so angry at them, like, for the right reason. He's not, like, angry at them just to vent on them. He's angry at them because they've let themselves down, they've let him down, and he has hopes for them. He wants them to make it. Yeah, and you see, I think, on his face um, the toll that this job can take on a person. He's, you know, he's stressed out. At the basketball game that follows, he is, you know, he can barely stand it because he's so anxious about them winning because he knows what a win will mean to them. And um, I think that job, it's hard to overstate how stressful it is to be a principal when the stakes are that high. And the stress really does start to crank up as the school year goes on. They're really struggling with this question of how well the students are going to do on the tests and with um, with uh, attendance. Uh, so talk about what kind of happens as the school year goes uh, goes on. Well, a wrench is kind of thrown into everything when the, the, the school district finds out it's got a multi-million dollar budget gap. And Mr. Hockenberry gets what's called a non-renewal notice telling him that his when his contract expires, he does not have a, a job there the following year. Um, it's happened before in the district, and everyone gets rehired, so he's not sure what's going to happen, but it's a blow. And meanwhile, he's waiting to find out what the state is going to say about the school's performance. So he's feeling pretty disillusioned uh, towards the end of the school year. Um, and I don't want to give away what happens, but I do think it raises a lot of questions about how we judge success in in schools for um, our most disadvantaged students. Because the progress that the school has made, it, it may not be what the state is looking for, but it's hard to argue that it hasn't made progress. I mean, kids are graduating, kids are getting health care, kids are seeing a dentist when they may have not have seen a dentist their entire life. Um, and I think, you know, it raises questions about whether we as a system are patient enough to see real change happen. Um, is incremental change enough? Or do we, is it only good enough if it's pretty instant? Um, I think this approach at Euler and in other neighborhoods 
will probably take a generation to know if it really worked because we want to see what happens to those kids who who come as babies and stay all the way through getting all these services along the way. Um, then we'll know if it's really going to work. And I think that that became for me the kind of central question of this film. Not do community schools work, but if given time, can it be part of the solution? I think you referred to this, the the sort of divide in our country now between sort of the no excuses folks who really believe that, you know, we should be able to close the achievement gap for low-income kids and um, students of color by focusing on what's happening inside the school. Um, And then the folks who say, we've got to take poverty into account. And I think, you know, I haven't reached any huge conclusions from this project, but I I do see, just seeing what those students were dealing with and what their families were dealing with, I think poverty can't be discounted. And um, unfortunately, you know, more than half of students in public schools today are considered low income. And this is something that teachers are grappling with more and more even in the suburbs. And um, I think it's going to be one of our greatest challenges is figuring out how to help those kids succeed despite the, the barriers that poverty presents. Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. That was filmmaker and Marketplace Education correspondent Amy Scott. She was talking about her documentary film, Euler, One School, One Year. You can find out more about the film, see where it's being screened, and you can even organize a screening yourself at EulerDocumentary.com. Also, Amy mentioned that uh, she has been uh, reporting on this school and people at the school on Marketplace. You can go to the Marketplace website to find those stories, marketplace.org. You can find out more about American Radio Works and explore our archive of education documentaries at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, send us a note to let us know what you thought about this podcast or any of our programs. You can click on the About button and look for the Contact Us form. We're especially interested in knowing what impact American Radio Works stories have had on you. Have any of our interviews or programs made you think about an issue differently? Do you regularly share American Radio Works material with your friends or your colleagues? We'd really like to know, and there's a spot in that Contact Us section where you can tell us your impact story. It's all available at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Emily Hanford. Thanks for listening. This is APM.